Sports Island is a complete sports podcast covering all major news and topics from across the PGA Tour, NFL, NBA, NHL, MLB, and NCAA. This podcast focuses on sports only, as political, racial, and social issues are not discussed. If you are a sports fan and are looking to stay up to date on all of the major news and topics from across the major sports, then Sports Island is truly your getaway destination. You're listening to the Sports Island Podcast with your host, Rick Mitchell. And now, the Sports Island Podcast. Hey everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. This is version 56 of the show, and it's another busy one for you this week. Uh, we got some events on the PGA Tour to recap, some NHL, NBA standings updates, of course as well in the NFL, we're through 14 weeks, plenty to talk about there. And then in college football, the final playoff rankings have been released, so we know who the college football playoff teams will be. Um, we also have some bowl games to preview and some college football awards to go over that were handed out. So a busy episode. We'll start off uh, in the PGA Tour, and a couple weekends ago was the Hero World Challenge. And that was at the Albany course in New Providence, Bahamas. It was a par 72, distance was 7,414 yards. Now, the course itself had five par threes and five par fives, so very interesting layout in terms of scoring. Not usually do we see that many of each of those. Normally it's about two on each side instead of five, uh, you know, two or three par threes, par fives throughout the round instead of five of each. So interesting layout. The field itself was 20 of the top players in the world. Now, it was a limited field of only 20 players, but that was actually the most players in this event um, in, its, in its history. Uh, the field was comprised of top-name players uh, in the official world golf rankings in combination with their victories on tour last year, performance on tour last year. A lot of these guys that were in the field won at least one event on tour last year. And, um, of course, any big name you can think of with the exception of, I think, John Rahm, Patrick Cantlay were two of the major names that probably weren't there, but you had uh, JT, Morikawa, uh, Kepka, Shoffley, DeChambeau, Rory, Spieth, uh, you know, just anybody, all the big name guys. But in the end, Victor Hovland was your winner at 18 under par, and he did so uh, with back-to-back Eagles in Sunday's final round on the 14th and 15th holes. Had back-to-back Eagles, followed that up with a birdie. So he went five under in that three-hole stretch and then actually tried to give it away because he bogeyed 17 and 18. So he uh, was probably a little closer than he wanted to be, but he did, Hovland did end up winning uh, by one shot over Scotty Scheffler, who finished at 17 under par. And Scheffler did so by birdieing six out of his final eight holes, including four of his last five. So he was a birdie machine. He actually had uh, nothing but birdies on his card except for the one blemish of a triple bogey on the fourth hole. So if Scheffler would have just parred that hole uh, instead of triple bogeying, he would have won this thing by two shots. But um, nonetheless, Scheffler's been playing really well, especially on the heels of his Ryder Cup performance a couple months ago. Uh, 
Third place, there was a two-way tie. It was Sam Burns and Patrick Reed, both at 15 under par. Uh, Burns, again, just, uh, you know, his name has come up quite a bit uh, over the last year, really. He seems to be kind of near the top of any tournament he plays in. Had a uh, couple wins on tour, and uh, he's just a really good young golfer. His scorecard was kind of all over the place on Sunday as well. He definitely had a chance to, to win. Uh, two-way tie for fifth, Justin Thomas and Colin Morikawa were both 14 under par. Now, the interesting thing about Morikawa, he actually was the 54-hole leader after Sunday's round with a score of 18 under par, uh, which was the winning, ended up being the eventual winning score. But Morikawa had like a four- or five-shot lead heading into Sunday, and all he needed to do was really just kind of play par golf uh, to win this thing. And he came out with two double bogeys in his first six holes, and uh, that just sent him in a tailspin. He ended up shooting a four-over 76 on Sunday, just completely ruined his round and sent him down from uh, from one down to T5 for a finish. So, uh, But all in all, it was a good tournament. I like these limited field tournaments. Uh, it's just a quicker, quicker round. Uh, the pace of play seems to be pretty quick, especially when you have a lot of the top top guys out there but uh it was a good it was victor hovland's fourth career victory on tour so uh he had won earlier this year he's he's coming in uh to this up, upcoming season here as as probably a, a top 10 player in the game right now i think uh certainly top 15 but i think you can make the case hovland is officially a, a top 10 player now but uh last weekend was the qbe shootout and this was at the Tiburon Golf Club at the Ritz-Carlton Resort in Naples, Florida. And this event is interesting because it was only 54 holes, okay? Uh, they, they only played three rounds, and there were 12 two-person teams, all right? So you only had 24 golfers out there. They were in teams of two, and it was a different format every day. Friday was your traditional scramble where both golfers uh, – play the best ball, basically. They both hit they, from the best lie, right? Traditional scramble. Saturday was modified alternate shot. Both golfers teed off on every hole. They selected the best shot from there and then alternated shots on through the rest of the hole. Now, Sunday's final round was four ball, where both golfers play their, their own ball and record uh, every the lower score on every hole. So... Um, Last year's winner was Harris English and Matt Kuchar. They had a record-setting uh, score of 179, which was 37 under par. So they were in the field again this year. They finished T3. Your winner, though, was Jason Kokrak and Kevin Na. They finished with a score of 183, which was just four shots off of last year's record set by English and Kuchar. Uh, Kokrak and Na, both players, Kokrak especially, had to, I think three victories on tour this year, uh, either two or three. Uh, very impressive year on the PGA Tour for Kokrak. And Kevin Na also had a victory this past season. Um, he, uh, When he gets hot with the putter, man, he's he's a good player. Um, they beat Billy Horschel and Sam Burns by one shot. And, of course, there we go, Sam Burns. I just mentioned it. Every, every tournament he plays in, his name is somewhere uh, near the top of the board. So Horschel and Burns finished one shot back of Kokrak and Na, and then Harris English and Matt Kuchar, the record-setting team from a year ago, 
they finished two shots back of Kokrak and Nah. So uh, not quite the same juice they had. They were actually um, tied for the lead after the first round. Or they were in second, tied for second after the first round. So they came out playing pretty well. Um, Mark Leishman and Jason Day were also tied with with Harris English and Matt Kuchar for T3. And uh, your T5, you had Kevin Kistner and Max Homa and Corey Connors and Graham McDowell. So those two teams finished five shots back of Kokrak, and, uh, uh, but that was good enough for T5. So interesting format. I didn't get to see any of the QBE shootout this past weekend, but uh, the golf course itself is – I went and looked at it. It's very – you know, it's in Naples, Ritz-Carlton Resort, definitely a beautiful course. So that brings us to this upcoming weekend's tournament, which is the PNC Championship. And that is at the Ritz-Carlton Golf Course at the Ritz-Carlton Resort in Orlando. So we go from one Ritz-Carlton course to another, from Naples over to Orlando. Uh, the PNC Championship has been at this course every year since 2002. It's a par 72, distance is 7,106 yards. A lot of water. Um, the interesting thing about this tournament is that there will be 20 golfers and it's only two rounds. Now, the golfers are paired up with um, their family members, basically. Um, last year's winner was Justin Thomas and his dad, Mike. Uh, they ended up winning uh, after back-to-back 62s. Oh, well, that was Charlie and Tiger Woods. Ch- uh, Charlie is Tiger's son. Tiger played with his son, Charlie, last year. They had they finished seventh in the tournament Uh with back-to-back 62s, and Tiger announced already, that's the big news, is that he's playing in this tournament after his horrible car wreck uh, earlier this year, and so this will be his first main golf event. He's been, you've seen videos of him hitting on the range, uh, but we'll see how he actually holds up. Charlie played really well last year, so uh, it'll be interesting to see how how he does this year. Um, female golfer Nelly Corda, Olympic gold medalist. She uh, she's gonna be paired up with her dad, Peter. Um, some other, um, you know, Jim Furyk's playing with his son Tanner. Uh, VJ Singh's playing with his son. Henrik Stenson's playing with his son. So um, you can see a lot of lot of father son pairings. Um, but it's an interesting, you know, form. There's only two rounds. Um, it's just it's fun to watch. You know, it's fun to watch the golfers play with their, with their sons or their parents, and uh, so I'll, I'll probably tune into that just a little bit, especially to see Tiger since it's his first, uh, first golf action since the car wreck. But uh, yeah, definitely pay attention to that this weekend. But we'll move on to the National Football League. Do a standings update here in the NFL. We didn't do a full standings update last episode, so we'll get into that. I will say we are through 14 weeks of the NFL's regular season. And through weeks 1 through 13, there were only four successful onside kick attempts. And in week 14, by itself, there were four successful onside kick attempts. So uh, in week 14, we doubled our successful onside kicks from 4 to 8, which was very interesting. Uh, Those are extremely hard with all the rules and stuff now it's extremely hard to successfully get an onside kick but uh, the NFL of course in its uh, 
consistent ways of providing us crazy football, uh, provided that this week we would double the onside kick success rate. But we'll start off the standings updates in the AFC. Playoff updates, you know, where division races are, are coming down to the wire. We'll do a pre playoff preview episode maybe in another couple weeks just to kind of see how that's going along. But in the AFC East, the New England Patriots, hottest team in the NFL. They're on a seven-game winning streak. They're 9-4. and four. Uh, They're 6-0 and oh on the road, which is pretty impressive. Usually it's easier to win at Foxborough for them, but such has not been the case. They are 9-4, and four, and they had a Monday night game against uh, in week uh, 13 against Buffalo, where they were in Buffalo. It was 30 degrees, 50-mile-an-hour wind gusts at times. The first half only took an hour to play because of all the run plays. And, in fact, the Patriots became the first team since 1978 to only throw one pass in the first half. Mac Jones had only one one pass in the first half. New England actually won the game 14 to 10, and Mac Jones had three pass attempts. He was two of three for 19 yards, which was the fewest in franchise history. And it tied the 1968 Chiefs for the fewest pass attempts in a game uh, in the Super Bowl era. And in that win, the Patriots also became the first team since the 1978 Saints to rush on 90% of their plays in a game. So it was just a really wild game. Huge game. It was crazy that that was the weather for that meaningful of a game because the Bills are 7-6. and six. They're two games back of the Patriots. And then the Miami Dolphins, they've won five in a row. They're 6-7. and seven. And Jalen Waddell, the uh, rookie wide receiver, now has six games with at least eight catches, which ties Odell Beckham for the most such games by a rookie in NFL history. It also puts Waddle on pace for 112 catches this year, which would beat Odell Beckham's rookie record by 11. So uh, Waddle's been kind of a revelation there in Miami. Uh, he's not the deep threat that he was at Alabama, but he is um, good for six to ten catches a game, it seems like. But the Dolphins are squarely in the, in the wild card. Uh, playoff mix here in the AFC, which is absolutely unbelievable, uh, considering a month ago they only had one win. Uh, the New York Jets, they're 3-10. and 10. You know, I mean, they're they are going to have a top three pick in the draft. Uh, over in the AFC North, this division is probably the most competitive. Um, Baltimore Ravens currently are leading the division at 8-5. Uh, they lost Pro Bowl corner... Marlon Humphrey to a torn pec in week 13, so he's out for the year. Just add that to the list of injuries. And then, of course, in week 14 here, Lamar Jackson got hurt in the first quarter, sprained his ankle, so he missed the rest of that game. Uh, I think he's maybe questionable for this week. Uh, but, that you know, that division, Cleveland 7-6, and six, uh, Cincinnati, uh, they just lost in overtime this past week. They're 7-6, and six, so you have – uh, eight and five, seven and six, seven and six, and then you have the Pittsburgh Steelers, who are six, six and one. Which they lost to Minnesota on Thursday night in Week fourteen, and uh, just it, you know, you can't count them out because it's a Mike Tomlin coach team, and they do have enough talent to at least compete for with some of those other teams in the wild card. But um, you know, in Week thirteen. Uh, ben Roethlisberger, uh, you know, Pittsburgh ended up beating the Ravens 
by a point. It was 20 to 19 only because Baltimore tied it with 30 seconds left and chose to go for two instead of kicking the extra point to win. Did not convert the two, so Pittsburgh would ended up winning. But that game was Ben Roethlisberger's 57th win of his career by six points or fewer, which ties Drew Brees for the most such wins since 1950. And then uh, also on the offensive side of the ball, rookie running back Najee Harris. Uh, the kid is unbelievable. He has the most touches in the NFL this season with 297 and zero fumbles. So the kid has not fumbled the ball in almost 300 touches, and he's the only player in the NFL with more than 180 touches to not fumble. So uh, the dude is just a – he's rock solid. If he had half a decent offensive line, um, he might be up there in the Jonathan Taylor category. But – uh, Harris is a special player. Over in the AFC South, Tennessee Titans are 9-4. and four. Uh, Reports are that Derrick Henry is looking good to return uh, before the end of the year. He's on, on track ahead of schedule with his recovery from foot surgery. So definitely keep an eye on that. They're treading water right now. They got a two-game lead on the Colts, who are 7-6. and six. Now, Indianapolis, they run a bye in Week 14. Of course, they come back. Jonathan Taylor is healthy. He's good to go. Uh, the dude is just on a roll. They got a tough game against New England this week, so we'll see really where they're at uh, as a barometer. And then Houston and Jacksonville, the Texans and the Jaguars are both two and eleven, uh, both absolutely horrible. The Texans have lost three in a row. Jaguars have lost five in a row. A lot of drama surrounding Urban Meyer and rumors that he may get fired, uh, or you know, at the end of the season, or hell, even in mid, you know, in the middle of the season before. <laughs> because they're not going to the playoffs. So uh, we'll see what the status is there. But a lot of drama in Jacksonville. Over in the AFC West, the Kansas City Chiefs are 9-4. and four. Uh, Their defense is continuing to improve weekly. Uh, the Chiefs have won six games in a row. Okay, So they're, they're getting hot at the right time. A lot of that's in part to their defense. Their offense looks like it's continuing to, to pick up. Uh, Mahomes is looking better. Uh, compared to that slump that he was in. So the Chiefs are looking good. Uh, L.A. Chargers are 8-5. Uh, they're on a two-game win streak. They're right. They're keeping pace with the Chiefs. They're right there. Um, I, I would fully expect the Chargers to be in the playoffs in a wild-card capacity. I don't know if they're going to quite catch Kansas City, um, but they might. Um, but we'll see. Denver is 7-6. and six. Uh, The Broncos... Uh, it's just I feel like they I, I just I don't see them getting into the playoffs I know they're in in contention for a wild card spot but I just I think there's other teams that are seven and six that are better than they are basically Buffalo Cleveland Cincinnati Indianapolis I would all say are better than Denver um, so that's kind of Denver's problem the Las Vegas Raiders they're six and seven last in the AFC West they just got pummeled by the, the Chiefs. They're on a two-game skid after beating the Cowboys on Thanksgiving. So uh, we'll see where they're at. Uh, again, they're kind of on the outskirts looking in at this point. I don't know if they have enough firepower to get back into the playoffs with only four games left. Uh, but over in the NFC, the NFC East, the Dallas Cowboys are 9-4. and four. Uh, Two-game winning streak there, big win against Washington to kind of be in the driver's seat of that division. Uh, Trevon Diggs did not have an interception in week 14, but uh, he did have one in week 13, uh, which was the 12th game for the Cowboys. And nine interceptions in 12 games is the most by any player at that point in the season over the last 40 years. 
He's still got four games left. We'll see if he adds another couple interceptions, but the dude has just been unreal. And he's not even the best defensive player on his team. That belongs to Micah Parsons, who not only is going to be the defensive rookie of the year, he might as well be the NFL's defensive player of the year. And I've even heard his name come up in NFL MVP conversations, which is insane to think about. But um, the way he's played, he's the only person in the NFL this year with at least 25 quarterback hits and at least 15 tackles for a loss. And he had a couple more of each this past week uh, in week 14. He had two sacks, including a strip sack. Uh, this is his third force fumble of the year. Dude's just an absolute monster. Whether he plays D-end or linebacker or somewhere in between, he's the best defensive player on the field. It shows. All you got to do is turn a Cowboys game on. You notice him. Um, I would I would certainly argue that uh, if the MVP wasn't strictly a quarterback award, as they've made it out to be, that Micah Parsons is probably the most valuable player on his team at this point in the season. So uh, that leaves Washington football team and Philadelphia Eagles. They're both 6-7, and seven, uh, three games back of the Cowboys. And then the New York Giants are 4-9. and nine. So uh, the Giants play the Cowboys in New York this week. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. Over in the NFC North, Green Bay Packers, they're 10 and 3, two game winning streak. Uh, they are uh, looking as fierce as ever. They're actually the number one seed in the NFC now after LA beat Arizona on Monday Night Football. So Packers are in control for, uh, they're in the driver's seat for home field advantage, which uh, look out if, if they get a home field. Lambeau is probably the last place you want to play. Uh, Minnesota Vikings are 6 and 7. They had a good win over Pittsburgh on Thursday night in Week 14. Uh, they're just kind of stuck in neutral. They've had some bad losses, but we'll see uh, how they end up. I th- they're in contention for a wild card spot. Uh, the Chicago Bears are four and nine. Detroit Lions one eleven and one. Not much going on there with either one of those teams. They're both going to have fairly high draft picks, although Chicago uh, doesn't even own theirs. But uh, over in the NFC South, Tampa Bay Buccaneers are 10-3. and They're on a four-game winning streak, and they're actually 6-0 and at home this year. So uh, Raymond James Stadium has turned out to be a really tough place to play. It's always hot and humid, but you factor in the, the Brady factor, and, you know, here it is. They're, they're, they got a four-game lead on their division because the Atlanta Falcons and the New Orleans Saints are both 6-7. and seven. Uh, <clears throat> You know, the Saints... Got Alvin Kamara back this week and won. He had a big game, 120 yards and a touchdown. So uh, I'd look for the Saints to overtake the Falcons here in the next week or two. But then you have the Carolina Panthers, who are 5-8. and eight. They're on a three-game losing streak. And Cam Newton, uh, this is a crazy stat to me. Dating back to his time before he, uh, before he left to go to New England, the Carolina Panthers are 0-11 in their last 11 games started by Cam Newton at quarterback, which is insane because Sam Darnold wasn't great earlier this year. His first few games were great. They started off 3-0, and uh, but uh, Cam Newton has not won a game as the Panthers' starting quarterback in the last 11 games he's played in, dating back a couple of years, which I thought was very interesting. Uh, but over in the NFC West, this is the AFC North is probably the most competitive division, but the NFC West is probably the best division. Arizona Cardinals are 10-3. Uh, they just lost on Monday Night Football to the Rams. 
who are at nine and four in second place. The Cardinals, though, they're seven and zero on the road. Uh, they lost uh, Monday night at home, so the Cardinals still have a home uh, or a seven and zero road record. But since the last episode, Arizona Cardinals quarterback Kyler Murray has become the fourth youngest player in NFL history to reach ten thousand career passing yards. We know he's dynamic with his feet, uh, but he's also pretty prolific throwing the football as well. Had 370 yards this past week on Monday Night Football against the Rams. But uh, Arizona is, I I don't believe them to be as dominant of a team as they were maybe three or four weeks ago. Uh, The Rams beat them. The Rams are 9-4, and just a game behind them in the division. Looking really good. Uh, Odell Beckham has stepped in for Robert Woods, has three touchdowns so far as a Ram, which is triple what he had in Cleveland. So uh, clearly Cleveland uh, was more of the issue than Odell Beckham in that situation. Uh, third place, the San Francisco 49ers. They're 7-6. and six. They are hanging on to a wild card spot and looking pretty good. Uh, George Kittle is the only tight end in the modern era with back-to-back games of 150 receiving yards as a tight end. He had 181 and two touchdowns a couple weeks ago and 150 yards and a touchdown this past week. Uh, Dude has just been an absolute machine, Uh, probably the best tight end. I mean, he's up there with Kelsey, obviously, for the Chiefs. But uh, uh, fourth place, rather, Seattle Seahawks. They're 5-8, last in the NFC West. They, they've won two games in a row. Uh, they had a little skid there. I think it was like four-game losing streak, I think. Uh, but now they're back on, on a two-game winning streak. Russell Wilson's progressively looking better the further he gets away from that hand injury. Uh, but I, I, I think the best that Seattle can do is a wild card. Uh, they're barely in the mix uh, behind you know, the Falcons, the Saints, Vikings, Eagles, uh, those kind of teams. So... I think they got a tough road, especially playing in that division. So we'll see if they can uh, if if they can scrap it out. But they'd be doing good to get seven wins this year at this rate. But so the NFL season again, we're <clears throat> there's only four games left in the regular season. It's moving fast, and uh, look forward to breaking down the uh, playoff matchups here as we get a little closer. It's mid December, so. Uh, before we know it, we'll be in the wild card round of the playoffs. But we'll move on to college football, do an update here. We have the final playoff rankings that have been released, so we know the college football playoff matchups. We also have the complete bowl schedule uh, in college football, so we can take a look at that, some of the more interesting matchups we can talk about. Um, But we'll recap real quick uh, conference championship weekend, which was uh, a couple weekends ago, and the Pac-12, we'll start there, it was a rematch between Oregon and Utah, and those two teams had met just prior, um, two weeks prior to that in Salt Lake City, where Utah ended up winning 38-7, to and that knocked Oregon out of the college football playoffs, essentially. Uh, so then they meet two weeks later, in the Pac-12 championship at Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas at a neutral site. And Utah beat him again, 38-10. to So almost an identical score. It's 38-7 the first game, 38-10 the second. Just a really kind of a shocking turn of events. 
um, for Utah to end their season winning a couple of games like that. Um, yeah, just very impressive. Over in the Big Ten, it was the Michigan versus Iowa. And, you know, Michigan had just knocked off Ohio State. And Iowa, you know, came in with a couple of losses. So um, this game really was never even close. Cool thing, though, Michigan just absolutely boat raced them. They won 42-3. to It wasn't even close. Um, Michigan, uh, in doing so, became the first team in the college football playoff era to make the college football playoffs after beginning the season unranked. So a pretty cool little feat there for the Wolverines. And in that game, they wore a number 42 patch of the high school football player from Oxford, Michigan, who was killed in that school shooting to honor him. And they ended up scoring 42 points and winning the game. So pretty neat little fact there. Uh, Over in the Big 12 championship, Oklahoma State and Baylor. Uh, Oklahoma State's defense, you know, against Baylor's defense, really. Both defenses played really well. Spencer Sanders, quarterback for Oklahoma State, had four interceptions. Really was too much to overcome. Oklahoma State did have four tries from the two-yard line at the end of the game to try and tie it uh, and could not get it. The final play was a little run play, bounced outside, and he, the running back reached for the pylon. He jumped about two inches short of where he needed to jump. So they came up short. Pretty, pretty intense little play to end the game. But Baylor's your Big 12 champs there. And then over in the SEC, of course, Alabama and Georgia. Alabama was six-and-a-half-point underdog, which was the highest uh, under Nick Saban since, I think, his first year. <clears throat> and, you know, everybody was on the dogs. And Nick Saban, after the game, of course, Alabama went into Atlanta there and just absolutely romped them. They beat them 40, uh, 42-24, I believe the score was. Just absolutely crushed them. And then after the game, Alabama coach Nick Saban was talking about the media feeding them rat poison. He said, thank you for the rat poison. It was delicious. So even the players were, were buying in that um, that they were the underdogs, and they really kind of fed off of that. So that brings us to the college football playoff rankings, which is the final rankings for the year. I don't need to go over all 25 teams. Uh, it's not really relevant. Um, I'm just going to recap the top 15 teams. At number 15, it's Iowa. Number 14, Oregon. Number 13, BYU. Number 12, Pitt. Number 11, Utah. Number 10, Michigan State. Number 9, Oklahoma State. Number 8, Ole Miss. Number 7, your Big 12 champion, Baylor. Number 6, Ohio State. Number 5, Notre Dame. Number 4, The American Athletic Conference champion, Cincinnati. Number three, Georgia. Number two, the Big Ten champs, Michigan. And number one, the SEC champ, Alabama. So interesting set there. So your top four, Alabama, Michigan, Georgia, and Cincinnati. Michigan and Cincinnati did not move in the rankings. Of course, Georgia and Alabama swapped places with that beatdown that Bama put on them. So that brings us, those are your top four teams. Those are your college football playoff teams. Since the college football playoff began, this is Alabama's seventh appearance in the college football playoffs. 
This is Georgia's second appearance. And then Michigan and Cincinnati, this is their first appearance. And Cincinnati became the first non-Power 5 conference team to make the college football playoffs. And they did so with a very impressive 13-0 record. Um, they had quite a bit of um, questions to answer, we'll say. And uh, the media was looking for them to slip up along the way, but all they did was win. They do have some very good players on both sides of the ball. So uh, do I think it's going to be a close game against Alabama? I don't, but uh, we'll get into that in just a second. We'll look at the college football bowl schedule. Um, we, of course, bowl season starts this week. College football bowls start on Friday, December 17th. And, of course, they go all the way. Uh, most of them are done by New Year's Day, January 1st, and then the national championship game is about a week after that. So uh, some of the better games, I guess you could say, better games on the slate for the bowl games, um, you have the Birmingham Bowl, which is number 21 Houston against Auburn. That's on December 28th. That's a, that's a pretty good bowl game there. Of course, Auburn came very close to derailing Alabama's season, and Houston made it to the American Athletic Conference championship game against Cincinnati. So that's a that's a good game to watch. The Liberty Bowl features features Mississippi State and Texas Tech. Um, that one I can see some points being put up there. The Guaranteed Right Bowl that's also on December twenty eighth. Um, another one on December twenty eighth is the Guaranteed Right Bowl between West Virginia and Minnesota. Big 10 versus Big 12, uh, I like that matchup. On December 29th, the Cheez-It Bowl between Clemson and Iowa State. Now, Clemson finished the season ranked number 19. And Iowa State began the season inside the top 25 and had a disappointing year, but I do like that matchup because Iowa State uh, has proven that they can actually hang with some good teams. Uh, later on December 29th is the Alamo Bowl. That's Number 15, Oregon, against number 14, Oklahoma. That is going to be a really good game. Of course, both teams have lost their head coaches. Uh, both teams have hired new head coaches. Bob Stoops will be the interim head coach for Oklahoma in that bowl game. Not sure who's going to coach Oregon in that game, but both teams have since replaced new uh, uh, replaced their head coaches. So uh, that's going to be... A good game there. And then probably the last bowl game before the New Year's Six games that we'll talk about, um, the Gator Bowl. Number 20, Wake Forest. Number 23, Texas A&M. That's on New Year's Eve early in the morning. That's going to be a good game. Um, Wake Forest was, was pretty good all year. And A&M, they were inconsistent. They beat Alabama, uh, but they also lost to... Uh, other teams that they shouldn't have lost to. So up and down season for them. But the New Year's Six Bowl games, all right, that's, uh, you know, premier matchups. The Peach Bowl is on December 30th. That's number 10, Michigan State, against uh, number 12, Pitt. Good matchup there. Uh, Michigan State's pass defense is the worst in the country, which is problematic when you're facing a Heisman Trophy nominee quarterback in Kenny Pickett 
for Pitt. So uh, I like Pitt to win that game just simply because Michigan State cannot handle the pass. The Cotton Bowl and the Orange Bowl, these are the college football playoff semifinal games. They're both on New Year's Eve, December 31st. The first one is the Cotton Bowl. That's number one Alabama versus number four Cincinnati. Uh, Alabama is going to be without star wide receiver John Mechie, who tore his ACL in that SEC title game. And I don't know what the spread is. I think it's I think when I saw it opened it was like sixteen and a half or something, which is pretty preposterous. But Alabama I, I think is is going to win the game. I, I just I don't see I don't see how Cincinnati can win. I think Cincinnati has the propensity to keep it closer than a 16-and-a-half-point game just because they have uh, a pretty solid defense, especially on the perimeter with their corners. Um, but I don't see Alabama losing to Cincinnati uh, considering the teams that they've beaten. So I like Alabama in that one. The Orange Bowl is also on New Year's Eve. It's number two, Michigan, number three, Georgia. This is going to be a, a really good game. Uh, Michigan likes to run the football. Obviously, Hassan Haskins and Blake Corum, both guys that can that can take it to the house on any run. They they predicate their offense on the run. You saw that against Ohio State and really Iowa as well. And Georgia's run defense is obviously the best in the country. So something is has to give there. Georgia also is obviously really good on the perimeter. Uh, with their corners and one of the best off the ball linebackers in Nicobe Dean. So uh, that defense is tough. I think Georgia's plan is probably going to be to force Cade McNamara to throw the ball, but uh, we'll see if that's what happens. But uh, I like Georgia to win. Uh, I know they're technically the lower seed. I just, Michigan, if, if they become one dimensional and have to start throwing the football, I think that's going to be highly problematic for them. So uh, I do like their defense, of course, with Aiden Hutchinson and David Ajabo on the edge. Uh, that's going to give Georgia some fits. Um, but when it comes, you know, defense wins championships, and I just like Georgia's better than Michigan's. Uh, now there's three New Year's Six games on New Year's Day, which the first one is the Fiesta Bowl. That's number five, Notre Dame, versus number nine, Oklahoma State. This is a really good matchup between two really – good teams. Uh, Notre Dame's offense against Oklahoma State's defense is going to be the story in this one. Oklahoma State's defense is what carried them to the Big 12 title game. And, uh, you know, Notre Dame has some playmakers on offense, Kyron Williams, but I, I like Oklahoma State. I mean, I know Notre Dame started off really rough to begin the year. They almost, they did lose one game against Cincinnati and then I had a couple other close close calls early in the year. But um, they're a much better team now than they were back then. I just I like Oklahoma State. I like the defense. Uh, Spencer Sanders is a very mobile quarterback. Hopefully they can have Ty Warren back for that. But uh, give me the pokes in that one. In the Rose Bowl, is number six, Ohio State, versus number 11, Utah. I know Utah beat down Oregon basically two games in a row, uh, once at home, once on a neutral site. But Ohio State is just, uh, you know, C.J. Stroud was a Heisman finalist. 
Travion Henderson, all he did as a freshman was score 20 touchdowns. Uh, I like Ohio State to beat Utah, and I don't think it'll be close. Final New Year's Six Bowl game is the Sugar Bowl. It's number seven, Baylor, versus number eight, Ole Miss. Baylor's proven to be good. Um, Their defense is good. They obviously shut down Oklahoma State. Ole Miss has uh, very likely the first quarterback taken in the NFL draft in Matt Corral. So uh, something's going to give there. Uh, Ole Miss has had a little bit longer of a break. They didn't play in the SEC championship game, so they might be a little more well-rested. I just – it's Big 12 versus SEC, and I'm usually you pick the SEC, and I think that's what I'm going to do here. Uh, give me Ole Miss to beat Baylor. But uh, based on my projections, I'm projecting a rematch between Alabama and Georgia for the national title game. And I, I don't see at this point uh, how you can bet against Alabama uh, if you watch the game against Auburn and what they did, and then that next week against Georgia, uh, you know, they're very complete. Uh, I don't know if they have as many NFL players this year as Georgia does, but Alabama keeps fighting, keeps winning, keeps finding ways to win, and Bryce Young is the Heisman Trophy winner. We'll get into that in a minute. But uh, you, when the ball's in his hands, the game is is basically at his will. So, uh, I do like Alabama to win the national title. So, But definitely pay attention to uh, the college football bowls if you're a football fan. It's the best best time of the year. It's bowl season. Lots of games coming at you between December 17th and New Year's Day. So you can pretty much find any bowl game you want uh, on any of the channels. I'll definitely be tuned into that, and uh, it's going to be an exciting college football playoff stretch here. But we'll move on to the National Hockey League, do a quick standings update here in the NHL. Uh, We'll start off in the Eastern Conference, the Metropolitan Division. The Washington Capitals are 17-5-6. Carolina Hurricanes, 19-7-1. The New York Rangers, 18-7-3. And And the Pittsburgh Penguins, they're on a five-game winning streak right now. Won seven out of their last ten. They're fifteen, eight, and five, so they're moving in the right direction. The Columbus Blue Jackets are fourteen, twelve, and one, and the Philadelphia Flyers, with uh, some coaching changes and things of that sort, uh, they have. Uh, we'll get into that around the island, but since the coaching change, they are uh, they've won three in a row. They're 11, 12, and 4, so it appears that they have made the correct move. The New Jersey Devils are 10, 12, and 5. They've lost three in a row. And then the New York Islanders are 7, 12, and 5. Just not a good season at all for the Islanders after making the playoffs the last couple years. Over in the Atlantic Division, the Toronto Maple Leafs are 28 and 2. They've won two in a row. Seven out of their last ten. Florida Panthers, 18-6-4. They've lost two in a row. Tampa Bay Lightning, 18-6-4. The Detroit Red Wings, 14-12-3. Still hanging around. They're, they've got ten wins at home. They're 10-3-2 at home, the Red Wings are, which is, is pretty impressive. Uh, Boston's 14-9-2. 
the Buffalo Sabres, 9-15-4. Ottawa Senators, 9-16-1. And, and the Montreal Canadiens are 6-21-3. They've lost four games in a row. They have played the most games out of any team in the NHL, tied with Vancouver and Anaheim for 30 games played, and they are in dead last in the entire NHL, the Canadians are. Over in the Western Conference, the Central Division. Uh, I mentioned uh, this is an extremely competitive division, and that's what it's appearing to be. Minnesota Wild, uh, they're 19-8-1. Um, they had won eight games in a row and then have lost two games in a row since. Uh, but they just continue. They're 10-2 and two at home. Uh, they just continue to really dominate so far. The St. Louis Blues are 16-8-5. Uh, they just came down to Dallas the other night and beat my stars. Uh, Colorado Avalanche are 17-7-2. They've won five games in a row, the Avalanche have. They did get some bad news, though. Their captain, Gabriel Landeskog, he's going to miss a couple weeks with a lower body injury. Uh, but the way that Colorado's been playing, they're, they're picking it up to where everybody expected them to be to start the season. Uh, the Nashville Predators uh, are fourth. They're 17-10-1. They're also on a five-game winning streak uh, as well. Uh, they were kind of projected to be a, a mid-pack team, I guess, uh, in, the, in the Central Division. But uh, they are solidly right now uh, in that four spot behind Colorado, St. Louis, and Minnesota. Winnipeg is 13-10-5. They're kind of just treading water. Uh, my Dallas Stars are 13-11-2. Now, they had a seven-game winning streak. Dating back to between last episode and this episode, they won seven games in a row, and in four of those games, they had scored a goal in the first 75 seconds. So I was thinking, you know, that was a good trend that they were starting, and they were looking really good in doing so in that seven-game span. They got themselves up into the top three of the Central Division. Well, here it is now. They've lost four games in a row. They went out, lost in Vegas, Los Angeles, and San Jose, and then came home and lost to St. Louis. So they have lost four games in a row. They're back down to 13-11-2. They're sixth in the Central. And if there's one thing that I can count, I was actually getting excited about watching the Stars. Um, and, of course, they have to let me down with four straight losses. If there's one thing that's consistent about the Stars is that they are consistently inconsistent. Okay, They are about as mediocre as it gets. Uh, ben Bishop just retired. We'll get into that uh, and around the island. But it just the Stars are so frustrating to watch. They looked extremely good in that seven-game span and then have completely just shit the bed in the last four games on that losing streak. So I don't know what to make of it, really. Um, I, I don't know if they'll be a playoff team. They're currently seven points back of Nashville with only two games in hand. So uh, s eight points back of Colorado for that third spot. So we'll see. I don't know if they're going to make the playoffs. Chicago Blackhawks, 10-15-2. And, and then the Arizona Coyotes, 5-20-2. They've lost five in a row. Well, they're, they're, they're the only team worse than Montreal in the league. The Coyotes are. Uh, over in the Pacific Division, the Anaheim Ducks, 16-9-5. Calgary Flames, 15-7-6. Now, the Flames have had a little COVID issue. Uh, they had six players and one coach end up in the COVID protocol, so they've had three games postponed. 
I think as we record this, uh, they're in the middle of that postponement of their three games. But they join the Ottawa Senators and the New York Islanders as teams having to postpone some games this year due to a COVID situation. The Vegas Golden Knights are third in the Pacific at 17-11. and 11. Uh, They've won two in a row. And then the Edmonton Oilers, they're 16-11. and 11. They've lost six games in a row for a team that started out so unbelievably scorching hot uh, to just come back down to earth like that. They have two of the top probably five players in the league between Connor McDavid and Leon, Leon Dreisaitl, but they've lost six games in a row. Um, they're still one point clear of the San Jose Sharks, who are 15-13-1. and one. The Los Angeles Kings are 12-10-5. and five. The Vancouver Canucks are 13-15-2. They've won five games in a row to get themselves up to that 13-15-2 mark. They've won seven out of their last ten, including five in a row since making the coaching change. So I'll get into that here and around the island. But they got a new coach, a new GM. They made a whole bunch of changes there in the front office in Vancouver. And uh, since then, they've done nothing but win. So clearly that was the right move to make for them. And then last in the Pacific is the Seattle Kraken at 10-15-3. So uh, they've, they have won five out of their last ten. So uh, that's probably where, where they'll be camped out most of the year. But again, I say this every episode. They're a fun team. I like watching them. And uh, we're, you know, roughly 24 to 30 games into this regular season. So we're still moving along here uh, on, on the NHL season. And um coming up to a little break here for the holidays. But we'll zip over real quick to the NBA, do a quick standings update there, and we'll start off in the Eastern Conference. The Brooklyn Nets are still holding down that top spot at 20-8. and eight. Uh, They've won three games in a row, seven out of their last ten. The Chicago Bulls are 17-10. and 10. They're on a two-game skid right now, and they actually had a couple games postponed due to having 10 players in COVID protocols. So we're starting to see a common theme here amongst the sports is, is the COVID issue. Really prevalent in the NFL at the moment, but uh, all sports are being impacted by it right now. Chicago didn't have enough players to field a team in those two games that had to get postponed, uh, but they still sit second in the East. Milwaukee Bucks are third at 18-11. and 11. They've won seven out of their last 10. The Cleveland Cavaliers, they're 17-12. and 12. They're on a four-game winning streak, and they've won eight out of their last ten. And they're doing this all without Colin Sexton. Uh, so it's pretty impressive to see what they're doing. I, I don't know if they're really a legitimate playoff contender in the Eastern Conference, but the way that they're playing through almost 30 games, you got to think that they might be hanging around uh, that play-in tournament uh, at the end of the year. Miami Heat are 16-12. and 12. Philadelphia 76ers are 15 and 13. They're still without Ben Simmons, still trying to trade him, still doing what they can to pretty much avoid that situation. Washington Wizards 15 and 13. Charlotte Hornets are 15 and 14. Boston Celtics 14 and 14. Kind of a surprise this year. You know, you figure with the with the roster that Boston has and just the pedigree and the fact that they're always in and around the playoffs to see them at 500 sitting in ninth place in the Eastern Conference here over a quarter of the way through the season is, is kind of surprising. The Atlanta Hawks are 10th at 13 and 14. Toronto Raptors are 13 and 15. The New York Knicks have lost four in a row. They're 12 and 16. Indiana Pacers are 12 and 17. The Orlando Magic 
are 5-23. and 23. They've lost five in a row. They've only won once in their last ten games. And the Detroit Pistons, worst in the NBA at 4-22. and 22. They've lost 12 games in a row, and they have their eyes on that number one overall pick again for a second consecutive year. Over in the Western Conference, Golden State Warriors are 23-5. and five. They've won seven out of their last ten. And in Wednesday night's game, Steph Curry became the NBA's all-time three-point leader, uh, passing Ray Allen for the most three-pointers made in NBA history. So congrats to him. We knew it was coming, just a matter of time. Uh, he will definitely continue to expand on that record, and that will be a record that will not be broken. The Phoenix Suns are second in the West at 22-5. and five. Uh, They've won uh, eight out of their last ten. Now, they did have an 18-game winning streak uh, at one point uh, before during the last episode, um, continuing on up until this episode. Their, their winning streak hit 18 games, and then they lost to Golden State in that, uh, in that game. So an 18-game winning streak, they're still... Uh, 22 and 5, really good. The Utah Jazz are 19 and 7. Uh, they've also they've won seven in a row. The Jazz have Donovan Mitchell, and Mike Conley, just a pretty good team there. We knew that last year as well. Uh, Memphis Grizzlies, they've won three in a row. They're 17 and 11. So between Memphis, Utah, and Phoenix, the three teams I just talked about, they've all won eight out of their last ten. So they're all playing really good basketball. The L.A. Clippers are 16-12, and 12, and they have a four-game winning streak at the moment. And right behind them in sixth, the Los Angeles Lakers at 15-13. and 13. They're seeming to kind of get some things figured out. Uh, they've won a couple in a row. We'll see if that continues. Uh, my Dallas Mavericks are seventh at 14-13. and 13. They're on a two-game winning streak at the moment as well. Luka Doncic has been in and out of the lineup. He's kind of been hurt. Um, he's overweight. Uh, they've mentioned that. There's been a report out that says he's about 30 pounds heavier than what he should be. So uh, we'll see if that continues to uh, be an issue. But uh, the Denver Nuggets are 14-13. and 13. Minnesota Timberwolves are 12-15. and 15. Sacramento Kings are in 10th at 11-17. and 17. They're on a three-game skid. The Portland Trailblazers, this is another disappointing team. They're 11-17. and 17. Uh, They've lost six games in a row, and they've lost nine out of their last ten. So uh, just a very disappointing year so far for the Trailblazers, uh, who still have Damian Lillard and C.J. McCollum, uh, two of the better shooters in the game. San Antonio Spurs are 12th at 10-16. and 16. Houston Rockets, they're 9-18. and 18. And the interesting thing about them is that they've won eight out of their last ten games. Now, according to the Elias Sports Bureau, the Houston Rockets are the first team in the history of the four major pro sports, so NBA, NHL, MLB, and NFL, to have a six-game winning streak immediately after a losing streak of 15-plus games. So before this, um, the Rockets, they had a, they had a six-game winning streak. I told you they've won eight out of their last ten. They had a six-game winning streak that was on the heels of a 16-game losing streak, so uh, they're the first team in sports history, really four major pro sports, to have that long of a winning streak after that long of a losing streak. So uh, I don't see the Rockets getting anywhere close to the playoffs, but uh, technically they're only a couple games out of the play-in tournament as it sits right now. The Oklahoma City Thunder are 8-18. and 18. 
They've only won twice in their last 10 games. And then the New Orleans Pelicans are 8-21. and uh, Zion Williamson has yet to play this year. Um, he's being reported as completely obese and out of shape and is needing some uh, conditioning assignments that he has not quite passed yet. So we'll keep an eye on that. But again, the NBA is kind of in the same spot the NHL is in terms of games played, upper 20s for each team. So uh, they're in the same spot. We got uh, some Christmas Christmas Day basketball to look forward to. Of course, there's five games all throughout the day on Christmas Day, so be sure and tune into that. But we'll move on to our segment called Around the Island, and that is where we do some quick news topics from across all of the various sports. We're going to start off in college football. Last week, it was just a massive segment here in Around the Island on, on college football and the coaching carousel that was spinning out of control. Well, since the last episode, it has continued to spin. We've had a few other big coaching decisions be announced. The biggest one would be Oklahoma. Of course, Lincoln Riley left for USC, and so that left a vacancy there in Norman, and that was filled by Clemson defensive coordinator Brent Venables. Oklahoma signed Brent Venables to a six-year, $43.5 million contract. That's $7.25 per year. He's spent the last several seasons under Dabo Swinney at Clemson, really made a name for himself, and has ultimately his name's been tossed around for other jobs here over the last couple seasons, but he decided that Oklahoma was the right fit for him. So Venables is the new Oklahoma coach, and he walks into quite the mess with all the transfers and decommitments that they've had. Another big coaching move was in Miami, Florida. The Hurricanes have pried away Mario Cristobal from Oregon. Now, Miami signed Mario Cristobal to a 10-year, $80 million contract. So that his is $8 million a year, whereas Venables is seven and a quarter. Now, Venables hasn't been a head coach at this level uh, like Cristobal has, so I can understand that. But Cristobal was only – he was 35 and 13 with Oregon in five seasons. So a uh, good record led him to – several high-profile bowl games, but uh, never really got the Ducks over the hump. Now, the weird thing about this hiring was that the news actually broke uh, before they fired current head coach or then-current head coach Manny Diaz. So it was leaking that they had Cristobal and negotiations, uh, and then this was before Diaz was even fired. So they ended up firing Manny Diaz hiring Cristobal. Now, Manny Diaz was 21-15 and 15 in three seasons with the Hurricanes, so it's not like uh, Cristobal's winning percentage was substantially better, but um, the Oregon job uh, was filled by Georgia defensive coordinator Dan Lanning. Uh, Oregon hired him to be, of course, their head coach, and now Lanning took the Georgia defense to uh, number one, basically, in all categories this year. Um, Oregon's not usually thought of as a defensive team. They're more uh, offensive now. Of course, this year they had Kayvon Thibodeau and uh, Noah Sewell, who is going to be an absolute beast. So uh, maybe it'll be good for him to get a defensive coach in there. But back to Manny Diaz real quick. As soon as he got fired from Miami, he went over and became the offensive or the defensive coordinator for Penn State. All right, so Brent Fry was the defensive coordinator at Penn State, but he left to go be the head coach at Virginia Tech. 
So a lot of moving parts there. And then Ohio State made the biggest assistant coaching splash. They hired Oklahoma State defensive coordinator Jim Knowles to be their new defensive coordinator. Uh, Knowles was a, a finalist for the Bryant Award, which was the coach of the year. He got that Oklahoma State defense right up to the very top of the country and um, right behind Georgia's defense. And he's got paid handsomely for it. Jim Knowles' contract with Ohio State's for three years, $5.7 million, which is $1.9 as an average annual value. Obviously way less than the head coaches, but that makes him the highest paid assistant coach in Ohio State program history. So it's not just the coaches that are on the move, though. It's the players, too. And then there's some players entered the transfer portal, and we've been seeing that at an unprecedented rate, basically, between last year and this year. Uh, a couple of the bigger names to enter the transfer portal this year, uh, five-star quarterback Quinn Ewers. He um, left – so he actually graduated – left high school here in South Lake, Texas, a year early to go um, – he had committed to Texas and then – backed off that and committed to Ohio State. So he spent this past year at Ohio State, didn't play. So he's transferring from Ohio State, and he decided to transfer to Texas. So he finally comes to the Longhorns a year later. He still does have four years of eligibility. So uh, as a diehard Longhorns fan, I'm hoping that Quinn Ewers can be the savior because we have Sam Ellinger was our only quarterback since Colt McCoy. Uh, that was actually worth something. So uh, big doings there in Austin. Uh, also, that recruiting class that we just put together clocked in at number four on ESPN's recruiting class rankings. Um, another transfer, big-name big transfer was Oklahoma quarterback Spencer Rattler. He uh, decided to transfer from Oklahoma to South Carolina. So he's going from the Big 12 to the SEC. And then regarding Oklahoma, some more news, they've – Lost uh, several other decommitments. They had a five-star defensive tackle decommit from them, and that doesn't even count the guys that we talked about on last episode about entering the transfer portal, including Spencer Rattler, who just did. So definitely uh, some some major major movement going on in college football. National Signing Day was uh, Wednesday, December fifteenth. So go ahead and check out the recruiting rankings. A lot of guys have already signed. Like I said, I know my Longhorns clocked in at number four in the country in their recruiting rankings, which is very impressive for a 5-7 and seven team. Uh, Steve Sarkeesian and those guys really got it working. But uh, we'll kind of go over uh, some college football awards. Obviously, we, we talked about the bowl games earlier, uh, but we'll just kind of go through some awards. Uh, the Heisman Trophy, that uh, is obviously awarded to the most outstanding player. We've all seen it. We all know what it is. The finalists for that were Alabama quarterback Bryce Young, Ohio State quarterback C.J. Stroud, Pittsburgh quarterback Kenny Pickett, and Michigan defensive end Aiden Hutchinson. The winner was Bryce Young okay, from Alabama. That makes back-to-back -back Alabama players because Devontae Smith won it last year. That makes Alabama the sixth school in history to have back-to-back -back Heisman winners. They join USC, Oklahoma, Ohio State, Army, and Yale to be the schools that have produced back-to-back -back winners. And this is also Nick Saban's fourth Heisman winner at Alabama, joining Devontae Smith, Derrick Henry, and Mark Ingram. So pretty elite company there for Bryce Young. A couple other awards. Bryce Young also won the Maxwell Award, which is the most outstanding player. The 
Walter Camp Award for Player of the Year is Kenneth Walker, the running back from Michigan State. He also won the Doak Walker Award as the nation's top running back. Bryce Young also won the Davy O'Brien Award, which is a quarterback award. Of course, you win the Maxwell and the Heisman, you're going to win the Davy O'Brien. The Fred Bolitnikoff Award for the nation's top wide receiver goes to Jordan Addison of Pitt. The Outland Trophy, which is the most outstanding interior lineman, could be on offense or defense. This year it was defensive tackle Jordan Davis from Georgia, just a massive, massive human being. Uh, Jordan Davis also won the Chuck, Be- Chuck Bednarik Award, which is the Defensive Player of the Year. And he, all in doing so, winning the Outland and the Bednarik Award, Jordan Davis became the first SEC player in history to win both of those awards in the same season, which I thought was very interesting with how many elite defensive players the SEC has produced. Uh, Aiden Hutchinson won the Lombardi Award, which is the nation's top player. The Bronco Nagurski Award for the top defensive player of the year. Uh, Will Anderson from Alabama, just an absolutely amazing season. The Dick Butkus Award for the most outstanding linebacker was Nakobe Dean from Georgia. Kind of mentioned him earlier. Uh, one of the best linebackers in the class. Surefire first-round pick this year in the draft. And then finally, the Jim Thorpe Award, which is the most outstanding defensive back, goes to Kobe uh, Bryant from Cincinnati, corner. So... Uh, lots of awards handed out, and um, we I talked about bowl season earlier uh, real quickly. There's been a couple of opt-outs, uh, both projected first-round picks. Oregon defensive end Kayvon Thibodeau announced he's going to skip his senior year and skip the Alamo Bowl to prepare for the draft. And then Arkansas wide receiver Traylon Burks, he's also going to enter the draft and skip the bowl game. Now, some bigger news out of college football Real quick, if you saw in the ACC championship game, Pittsburgh quarterback Kenny Pickett used a fake slide to get a first down. Uh, he acted like he was going to go down, but then kept running. Well, they, they counted it as a first down. But the NCAA has stepped in and with a rules interpretation that says, anytime a ball carrier begins, simulates, or fakes a feet-first slide, the ball should be declared dead on the field by the officials. And then the NCAA went on to say that the intent of the rule and player safety uh, is player safety, and the objective is to give the ball carrier an option to end the play by sliding feet first to avoid contact. So to allow the ball carrier to fake a slide would be to compromise the defense that is being instructed to let up when the ball carrier slides his feet. So uh, they basically have prohibited a fake slide. It will be blown dead uh, at the instant that the quarterback decides or the ball carrier decides to fake the slide. It was a great play. I like the creativity. You just can't do that uh, anymore. But over in the NFL, real quick, uh, future Hall of Fame quarterback, Pittsburgh Steelers quarterback Ben Roethlisberger, he has privately informed his teammates, which it's not so private anymore, that he expects this to be his final season playing quarterback for the Steelers. Now, he didn't say he was going to retire per se, Uh, But I just don't see him playing anywhere else. Um, He has steadily declined this last couple years, had problems staying healthy, and he's just not the quarterback that he was a couple years ago. Over in Carolina, the Panthers, they have fired offensive coordinator Joe Brady. Uh, Joe Brady was thought of as a home run offensive hire out of LSU a couple years ago, but he's out after a season and 14 weeks. 
So Carolina's senior offensive assistant Jeff Nixon is going to coordinate the Panthers' offense for the rest of the year. Over in Vegas, Las Vegas Raiders, they have re-signed kicker Daniel Carlson to a four-year, $18.4 million contract with $10.2 million guaranteed. And believe it or not, I thought this would have made Carlson the highest paid kicker in the league, but this actually checks him in at third highest in the league. So interesting there. Uh, another note on Vegas, the NFL announced that Las Vegas, Nevada, and uh, Allegiant Stadium is going to be the site for Super Bowl 58, which will take place February 11th of 2024. So uh, two years after this Super Bowl that we have coming up here in a couple months, Vegas will be the host of the Super Bowl, and I can't think of a better party city than Vegas. So that is going to be quite the spectacle there in a couple years for Super Bowl 58. Now, the major news out of the NFL, especially in this last couple days, is that is the large COVID outbreak. Multiple teams have had a ton of players put on the COVID list. I know the Rams had like nine players, including Odell Beckham. Cleveland Browns just threw a bunch uh, on COVID list, including Baker Mayfield, Austin Hooper. A lot of people going out with COVID. Over the past two days, the NFL has had 75 player positives for COVID, which is an absolute ton compared to what we have seen uh, earlier this year. It hasn't really been a factor until these last few weeks. We've had some positive tests here and there, but over this last few weeks, it's really kind of ramped up. And we've seen that in the NHL and the NBA too, both both dealing with um, some COVID stuff going on that we talked about in the standings updates. But over in the National Hockey League, a couple more head coaches have gotten fired. I referenced a couple of these earlier during the standings updates, but Vancouver, they cleaned house. The Canucks, they fired their head coach, Travis Green, their general manager, Jim Benning, and their assistant general manager, John Wiesbrod, and assistant coach, Nolan Bumgarner. So they absolutely cleaned house. Uh, they were in last place in the Pacific. We've established that, uh, well, they hired Bruce Boudreaux to be their coach. Uh, Bruce Boudreaux last coached in the NHL in February of 2020, Minnesota Wild. He has uh, almost 1,000 games as head coach. He's won uh, 567 games over the course of that 984 games. So it's a good winning percentage. He's coached four teams, the Wild, the Ducks, the Capitals, and now the Canucks. And prior to being hired, he was working as an analyst for the NHL Network. But uh, he's quickly come in, Bruce Boudreaux, and he's gotten the Canucks off to a five-game winning streak. So pretty impressive stuff there. Philadelphia Flyers, they fired Elaine Vigneault. Vigneault was in his third season as the Flyers coach, and he was on an eight-game losing streak when he was fired. So assistant coach uh, Michelle Therrien was also fired, and Mike Yeo, Mike Yeo was the, uh, he's the assistant coach. He's the interim head coach right now. Mike Yeo is in his third season as the Flyers assistant coach, and he's previously been the head coach of two teams, the Blues and the Wild, and he's won... Uh, he's coach, been the head coach for a little over 480 regular season games, and he's won 246 of them. So, uh, and then we talked about earlier, the Flyers have won three games in a row since Mike Yeo took over. So, again, another good decision. But Vigneault and Green being fired, they became the second and third head coaches to be fired this NHL season, joining Arizona's Jeremy Kalaitan. And then, of course, Florida Panthers head coach Joe Quenville had resigned earlier in the year due to the 
Chicago Blackhawks scandal back in their Stanley Cup winning seasons. Some other NHL news, the Arizona Coyotes, they had come across uh, a notice from the city of Glendale in the uh, Gila River Arena that the Coyotes were facing a lockout from their arena due to unpaid taxes and fees, but uh, they waited until basically the last minute to take care of those. It was $1.3 million in taxes and fees that needed to be paid, so they ended up paying that to stay in the arena. But the reports are that the Arizona Coyotes are looking to move over to Tempe, Arizona, which is where Arizona State University is. So they're looking to build a new arena out there. Now, my Dallas Stars, um, they've had some goalie issues here. Uh, Ben Bishop, he has spent the last 14 months trying to get back into the NHL after rehabbing a torn right meniscus in which he had surgery to repair. Well, it was announced the other day that Ben Bishop is actually medically retiring from the league because of his inability to recover. Uh, Bishop actually played a conditioning game the earlier this week with the AHL's Texas Stars, and it was his first game, first pro hockey game since uh, a 2020 playoff game for the Stars, in which he let in five goals in that one. But in the uh, AHL game this past week, his conditioning stint, Ben Bishop allowed eight goals in that one. So it was just time to hang him up. He's clearly not going to be back to himself. Um, overall, Ben Bishop, he played in four, uh, 413 games over 11 seasons. He had a 232 goals against and a 921 save percentage. So really good numbers. He did win a Stanley Cup with the Tampa Bay Lightning, uh, but just... Um, you know, it sucks to see Bishop uh, like this. He was a good acquisition for the Stars. He played, he had good numbers with the Stars, but uh, it was time to move on, just recognizing that his health is more important. Then the Stars also, after that announcement, the Stars waived uh, goaltender Anton Hudobin. Now, he did clear waivers, so no, no team signed him, so he's going to be on the Texas Stars, the AHL. And Jim Nill, the GM for the Stars, said he made the move for two reasons. One was to free up a roster spot, and that the other was that Hudobin needs to play in some games. Now, Hudobin has only played in seven games this year. Six of them he started. He has not played since November 18th, so it's been almost a month since he played. Um, Dallas rookie goaltender Jake Ottinger has kind of – he's played well enough that it's basically forced Hudobin out of that because Holt, Braden Holtby is the other goalie. He's played really well. Too. So it's made it very complicated for the Stars. But uh, over in the NBA real quick, uh, the NBA's obviously had a little COVID issue as well. So the NBA has informed the teams that beginning on January 15th of 2022, players are no longer going to be allowed to travel to Toronto to play games. All right. Now there's a new Canadian law that mandates all visitors entering the country be fully vaccinated. So uh, players that are not vaccinated are not allowed to play in Toronto against the Raptors. They're not even allowed to travel there. Uh, now, this has been in place in the NHL since the beginning of the season. And the only NHL player I know that's completely unvaccinated is Detroit Red Wings forward Tyler Bertuzzi. So he's actually had to miss all of their Canadian games, which in the NHL is a big problem because there's uh, uh, eight Canadian teams. Um, so... It's, it's quite an issue there in the NHL, whereas in, in the NBA, so there's only one Canadian team. So um, 
you know, it, it's not as big of an issue in the NBA, but that's that's interesting. Uh, the other piece of NBA news is the Utah Jazz. They're hiring former Boston Celtics general manager Danny Ainge as their alternate governor of operations and their CEO. So uh, Ainge has been out, I think, for about a year or so, got fired from Boston. But the Jazz, they're red hot right now, like we talked about earlier. So uh, they're a good team, and Danny Ainge is a good Good GM, former GM. The last piece of news uh, deals with college basketball, and this is going to be in women's college basketball. Uh, it's only noteworthy because it deals with UConn, and the best player in the nation is Paige Beckers, and she suffered a tibial plateau fracture in her left knee. She's going to be out six to eight weeks, and it should put her return to the court uh, sometime around the end of the season, probably end of February, which is just in time for the conference championships in March Madness. So uh, I just wanted to get that out there because she is the face of women's college basketball. And so uh, I know we'll we'll probably get to a men's college basketball ranking update in the next episode, but uh, we just had a lot to catch up on in the other major sports during this episode. Thanks for listening to the Sports Island Podcast. Be sure and find it on Facebook at Sports Island Podcast. I'm Rick Mitchell, and I'll catch you next time right here on the Sports Island Podcast, which is available everywhere you listen to podcasts.